Omagiana Timirandasya Yananjana Shalakaya Chakshur Unmilitam Yena Tasmai Sri Gurave Namaha Om Shanti Shanti Shantihi So, Grandma, I want to start by um, asking you this question. What matters to you? What matters to me is to see others elevated by the practice of yoga. Hmm. That's what matters to me. That's That's why I teach. That's why I study. That's why I write. That's why I publish. I want to see others fulfilled in human life by the practice of yoga. Why is that so important to you? It makes me happy. Mm, as simple as that, huh? It's as simple as that. It makes me happy. Yeah. When I see others become happy, it makes me happy. See, I have this uh, hypothesis a little bit that oh. we all share the same purpose, actually. Okay. And that, that's, well, maybe you should educate me as what, what that purpose <laughs> I, is. I don't know. It's just a hypothesis. Oh, okay. But, let's, but let's when you it. say that, it yeah. reinforces it because I ask this question a lot and uh-huh. almost always the answer uh, is around service. Yeah. So it seems that, that that's what all of our hearts are, are craving is to do something good for yeah. the world. Now, how, how that manifests and what particular type of good is, that's for the individual to decide. In your case, it's to see people uplifted uh, through the practices of yoga. Yeah. Well, I think the common feature that you're, to which you're speaking is everyone has a heart that desires to be released into relation with others and with ultimately the Supreme. And it's natural for the heart to flow, and it's unnatural for the heart to be hardened and not flowing. So I think we seek, you know, the flow of the heart. When we come into this world as little infants, we're expecting the flow of the mother's heart to us. And we're also, as infants, just working from the heart with our hearts flowing to the mother. Now, that can be interrupted, that can be disappointed later on or early on in life. So many things can obstruct the flow of the heart. So it's about returning to the real purity of heart. Mm. Yeah, because it seems that there's a a bit of a danger in allowing that to flow, that maybe that's what happens, right? It happens naturally when we're we're infants and then we get uh, burned. That's right. And, and, hurt. and hurt, hurt, sure. That's right. Hurt, and and so then maybe the reaction is, well, is we're questioning, is it a good idea to allow the heart yeah. of my love to flow yeah. anymore? Yeah. Well, you know that that's what is so beautiful about yoga is that through its various practices, and the practices can be you know complex, but the essence of the practice is to release the heart to all others and to all beings, and ultimately to the divine. Mm. So it's a complete practice of the heart, ultimately, mm. even though it may start with the body, you know, and it may start with, and also um, deal with disciplining the mind. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, the only thing we can take with us is what's in our hearts. Mm. When we leave this world, it's what's in our hearts. So how do we do that? I mean, obviously you could say all the yoga practices, but if you can sum it up, to how I can connect with my heart and 
live a life with love of yoga. Yeah. How do I do that? In yoga, we realize how much the universe is embracing us. We take that Ooh. for granted in conditioned life, but just the air we are breathing, right? Just breathe in, just that. What to speak of when you peel an orange, amazing. I mean, there's so much that makes us possible with that's effortless on our part. So much is embracing us from the universe. Yoga is about returning the embrace. We return the embrace by allowing our hearts to flow fully and thoroughly and purely to others and to the whole universe. Yeah, just earlier, I think you were talking about, you know, reversing the flow or when the flow is reversed. That's right. Um, and uh, I wondered if the flow is reversed when I do exactly what you're talking about. And I would maybe label it with gratitude. So as soon as I am grateful for this experience of being alive, the flow is reversed, or is it? Is that what happens? Yeah, that's, I mean, that might be a bit simple. Um, that, well, first of all, there are a few things flowing, okay? Mm -hmm. So while the universe is embracing us in so many ways, the uh, conditioned, the conditioning forces or the forces of conditioning are also flowing toward us. So we each find ourselves in a particular family. We find ourselves surrounded in a particular culture with particular education. We didn't really design all that. You know, we just sort of got plopped down <laughs> into that, okay? Uh, you didn't choose your parents and I didn't choose mine. I'm really glad that, you know, they came up with mine. That's fine, but not everyone feels that way. The idea then is that whatever the conditioning, even goodness is a conditioning though. Mm. Even, even though I had great parents, that's still a conditioning. It's about complete fulfillment of the self in this life. And that goes beyond the goodness and, and the harshness of our conditioning. And that's very tough to achieve. It's not easy to achieve. So there is the flow of the heart that gets um, obstructed, but then there's the flow of conditioning forces, which would keep us in this conditioned state if we do nothing. Mm. The, so it's the, yeah. it's the flow of the heart that will overcome those forces of nature and that will reverse the, the flow of their yeah. impact on us. I would even say maybe embrace those forces of nature, the conditioning, to see that they have a purpose as well and to even have gratitude for them. We were talking about the, my relationship with my samskaras, that if I look at, oh, these things that have happened to me and I wish that they didn't and right. I feel bad about all of them, that's one viewpoint. And then I can look at them and say, oh, like see the perfection in all of it. Yeah. And say, wow, each of those things had to happen in order for, for me to that's be right. right here, right now. That's right. And so then I have gratitude for them as well. Yeah, well put, very well put. Um, Patanjali says it uh, in his way. He says that, that suddenly all of those sanskaras, those mental impressions of those experiences, and, and the mind is the repository of 
all those wishful, fearful, and painful, and pleasurable experiences. And, but when we practice yoga, we take up a serious practice of yoga, we are in effect not dissolving those past experiences, but we are transforming our relationship with them to where we can be grateful. Yeah. And it's hard to be grateful for harsh experiences. It's hard, but there's a place for them. Uh, and I think that's the genius of Patanjali in his psychology of yoga, that we reverse the flow of the effects of those things and our relationship with those, those samskaras are completely changed, transformed. I wonder if it would be as hard, as challenging, if it was more common for humans to be practicing having gratitude for the challenges themselves. Like, I, I wonder, does it make it that much more uh, challenging, feeling like I'm in this alone, that there's, I don't really have examples around me of other people who are saying like, wow, that challenge happened to me, that hardship happened to me, and I really learned a lot from it. Yeah. That, that seems very unusual to hear something like that. Right, right. Well, you know, in the Bhagavad Gita, um, Krishna teaches that we are not alone. That's part of the conditioning, mm. that we feel like we're in our selves, apart from others, apart from the universe. And, you know, this is why I like the, the word that I sort of make up from the word individual. I think we're too busy being in mm -hmm. our individuality when we're really just interdividuals. We're little tiny specks of the total reality. Uns you know, unseparable even though we may feel separation, but we're actually unseparable, um, uh, totally unisolated, but yet we may feel ourselves to be isolated. So that's the conditioned state. So to remove those obstructions, to feel connection with everything is a natural causation for a gratitude. Mm. And not we shouldn't have gratitude artificially. Mm. Like, I'm really grateful for that kid that beat me up in the playground back in the day. Mm. Well, you know, I mean, are you really? I mean, well, yeah, because I'm working out now so I can be stronger so no kids will, will beat me up again. Well, that's, the, that's action and reaction. Mm. That's karma. Mm. We're talking about something that goes beyond karma. Well, even beyond that, it makes me think of the difference between thinking something and experiencing it. Yeah. Like, you know, the, the path from the mind to the heart. Yes. Right? I can think all sorts of things, and that's okay, and maybe that's a step in the direction, right? Right. But to actually, to feel it, right, to experience the sensation of gratitude in the body, this oh, yeah. is beyond. Oh, yeah. Um, that's, that's an exalted state. That's an exalted state, to really be grateful for everything. Yeah. And, and also, you know, on my yoga path, what I, what I realize is that I can do it sometimes, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know? Okay. That, this is one aspect that I feel is not really talked about um, as often as as perhaps it would be yeah. good to talk about it. That you know we 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 speak about these things often in I think totality. But the the truth of of, of what my inner guru says is that it's 
it's always fluctuating. Mm-hmm. It's always fluctuating. So it's a it's a aspect of the mind that thinks like, oh, you know, I experienced some samadhi and it's going to be permanent mm-hmm. and last. And now I've tagged the label on myself as like an enlightened being or, or, or something like mm-hmm. that. But from where uh, I'm sitting, every moment is an opportunity to practice and yes. it never ends. Yes, beautiful. Well, that that itself, that attitude that every moment is an opportunity is approaching a permanent samadhi. I mean, that is what we're supposed to be viewing and seeing, ideally. Hmm. It's, it's when we see our yoga practice as one thing and then our, our existence in the world as another. That's hmm. problematic, you know, that's problematic. And, and look, I mean, it's surprising how the world can surprise us and wake us up. Things that might ordinarily condition one person to a yogi will be something that wakes us up more and makes us more attentive. Look, when I first started practicing yoga, it was when I was 13 years old. I was doing poorly in middle school, and my parents said, oh, let's put them in a private school. They were well-to-do, and they could easily do that, so they put me in a private school. And the headmaster said, well, I'm starting summer school soon. You might want to get ahead. And I said, well, okay. Um, my, I looked at my parents, and they said, fine, you know. I said, what is the course that I would be taking? And he said, linguistics. Now, you know, most 13-year-olds really don't know what linguistics is, and I certainly didn't know. And I'm not even sure many adults actually know quite what linguistics is. But I found out soon enough, he was going through the structure of languages in the Middle East, Hittite, Egyptian, pictographic languages, you know, um, uh, Arabic, Hebrew. And then he went to India. And then he started talking about Sanskrit texts and yoga sacred texts. And inexplicably, so this is in a summer, you know, kids think summer school, this is a drag. The summer's a time for play. Mm -hmm. Summer's a time for just, you know, freedom from school. Here I am in summer school right, at a new private school, and I'm learning about linguistics, which I could care less about, but I'm hearing about Sanskrit texts, and inexplicably, it just perked my ears up, and I just said, I have to learn about this. So I would make a pilgrimage down, grew up in Washington, D.C., I'd make a pilgrimage down to, back then they were called occult bookstores that would have books on yoga, and Eastern religions. So I'd spent all day on Saturdays just sitting in the aisle reading books, and at the end of the day, I would buy one book. They were inevitably, you know, books on yoga. And that's how I started. Mm. But, but look how it happened. Yeah. Summer school, what a drag. Doing poorly in school, I had to go to summer school. Uh, you know, private school, and now I'm going to summer school. But yoga appeared. One word for lotus, many words for lotus in Sanskrit. But one is pankaja, that which is born out of the muck. And lotuses are famous for coming out of murky, mucky, gooey ponds. And they they, they grow out from it. and They blossom, the most beautiful flower in the world, right? From the muckiest, murkiest water. So that's how yoga showed up in my life, out of mundane school education, which I could never quite get used to. But there it was. I was being directed to a life of yoga. Yeah. It's beautiful. I think about this. 
and you know my my approach to uncomfortable things that happen in my life. I I don't feel compelled at this point to go searching for them, like the the suffering essentially. Right. But what I'm curious about is, can I have no interest in searching f- out the suffering, but at the same time really. Mm, see that there's a good chance that suffering is going to come and that it is an opportunity when it does come. And, and your, your story, and then the other aspect of it is how things outside of our control and decisions that other people make have such influence on the course of our lives, yeah. right? Like this situation of you being at this middle school and your parents' decision to send you this other thing and then the decision of this yeah. teacher to reach out to you and offer you um, a linguistics and then you, in this moment you heard uh, you know, about Sanskrit and that changed the course of your life. Absolutely. Like, right, I hear it in, right. in, in, in the story. So like, what do I do with that? And I think most of us have these situations where in one moment, in one, one particular day, something happened yeah. which alters the trajectory of your life. Yes. And to me, the conclusion is, like, let go to this ride. Yes. You know, I'm not in control here. That's right. That's beautiful. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's exactly right. We don't control these things. It's a, it's a grace. It's a grace that these things happen, you know. And then when, now going back to something you said earlier, sometimes we compartmentalize yoga. Like it's part of our lives and then I go to work Mm. or I take care of the children, whatever, okay? Or the parents or whatever. Well, you know, it's a, as we practice yoga, our yogic depth of field, if I can use a photographic term, Mm. phrase, our yogic depth of field gets deeper and broader. It starts off narrower. But as we practice, it gets deeper and it goes broader. I call that the yogic depth of field. Our, and, and the field, the word for field in, in Sanskrit is kshetra. And in the Bhagavad Gita, that word is used in the 13th and 14th chapters. That what is our field of awareness, our sphere of awareness? And how much of that do we engage yoga? And so that's the yogic depth of field. And, and so we heard a, a, a tape last night of Sri Gurudev talking about the yamas and the niyamas. And those, those are all about the depth of field. How much do we enter the, the, our depth of field with kindness and loving compassion and uh, with complete nonviolence at even subtle levels? Ahimsa being the first of the yamas, then satya, and then, then asteya, and so on. How much can we be purified of our interactions uh, uh, with people and just allow the heart, again, the heart to flow? So these five yamas are designed to allow the heart to flow to others. And the the niyamas are allowing us to develop the purity of heart within. So what the wars that happen on the outside are because of the wars that happen on the inside. All wars begin on the inside. And then they get acted out on the outside. That's why we have trouble in this world. We're st- the inner yeah. struggle. You yeah. know? The yoga invites this inquiry within, right? And it seems that it, or what, I'm, uh, what I'll ask you is, you know, why do you think it's so challenging um, 
to turn inward for a person, mm, right? Yes. It, it seems almost like a way of life to be focused completely on the external. Yes. Is it, is it fear? I'm afraid to, to, to really look at the thing that I control. I don't control much, if anything, but my inner world would make a lot more sense to me to focus on than all these things out completely, obviously outside of my mm. control. Yeah. Yes, the outward gaze gets very distracted by the things of the world. Very, there are a lot of distractions. The, the, the hearing gets distracted. You know, once in a workshop, some practitioners asked me, how do I deal with the mess of the world? It's so, it's so, I just carry it around with me all the time. Yeah. I said, I bet you, uh, I bet you watch and hear the news. Yeah. They said, yes. In fact, sometimes I can't even, I have to even get different sources of news. And I said, look, the Bhagavad Gita gave us the model of conflict and misery and suffering in the first chapter. As far as I'm concerned, the same thing's happening over and over, but just different players and different forms. The Gita says there will always be suffering in this world, not to, 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 to disregard it, not to diminish it. No, not at all. But the, the irony is by, by being so disturbed by it, you can't really fully address it. You have to be able to go within to be able to perceive more accurately what is happening on the outside. They're commensurate. So to the extent that I can go deep within myself is to the extent that I can actually deal with what's happening outside myself. And that's why Krishna says to Arjuna, after he, after Arjuna dumps the troubled contents of his heart, his shattered heart onto Arjuna, to Krishna, he says, Krishna says, be a yogi, mm. go within. He's saddled with an irresolvable ethical dilemma at the start of the Gita which propels him to go within. There's no way to solve this dilemma, whether to fight or not to fight. There's no way to solve this on an external, outside, ethical dilemma. He, the only way to solve this for him is to go inside. Because all wars, all struggles, all conflicts start on the inside. And then perhaps what's realized when I go inside is how important humility is and how real humility is because if I'm making assessments about the state of the world, yeah. the condition of the world, right there I see that's ego, big time. Right. Like, what do I, do I, do I really think I'm in a position to be qualified to make uh, an assessment of the state of the world? I mean, if just, just to even look at that, yeah. Yeah. How, how yeah. much that's out of my league as yeah. a human being. Like, I can't assess the state of the world. It's ridiculous to think that I could do that. Right. But you can read the first chapter of the Gita and say, okay, here it is, pretty much, you know, in a nutshell. State of the world's messy. It's just, it's designed to be messy. It's designed to bewilder us yeah. and to, to encourage us to go deep within. Because the inward vision, the inward vision, the inward gaze first allows us to contend with what is conflictual within ourselves. 
Because if we don't know what's conflictual inside of ourselves, then we can't conquer it. Mm. You know, you can't control, you can't conquer something that you're not aware of in the first place. You have to first become aware of it, yeah. and then you have the option, the opportunity to do something about it. So the, the inward gaze is about seeing the conflictual energies within ourselves, within the various sanskaras and events of our lives and so on, our histories. And then with the practice of yoga, we can begin to reverse their effects on us. Mm. That's the idea. And does that take courage to go inside and honestly look and be aware of what's happening? Oh, I think it takes a great deal of courage. It's the most frightening thing for humans to do is to look at the war within. It's much easier to create wars on the outside as a way of avoiding the mm. war on the inside. Mm. But is that what my heart really wants? Like, is that, is that what, what the heart is really calling for us to do? Look, pay attention, see what's happening yeah. so that you can learn. Yeah, the conditioned heart, yes. The conditioned heart says, you don't need to deal with this. Let's just take it out on the world, you know? Fight with this one, fight with that one. You know, um, uh, there are all kinds of excuses. The hurt heart, and notice the phonetic similarity between the words hurt and heart, right? Mm -hmm. The heart is so easily, it's so fragile, it's so easily hurt. And those things have to be addressed. And then the real flow of the heart outward into the world becomes something very beautiful mm -hmm. and very powerful, really, mm -hmm. powerful. This is why I think gratitude is uh, such a key and it is, almost feels like uh, armor in, in doing this work because if I genuinely am grateful for this experience that I'm having, okay, and even if it ends right now in this moment, I, I, I still say, wow, I've experienced so much in my life. Yeah. You know, from that place, it's much easier to look and investigate and, and see, because what do I, I, I'm not afraid of losing anything. Mm. Yes, but of course, again, we can't artificially be um, gracious about things and have gratitude about things that still are painful. Mm. So we, we have to, we, we can know obje maybe objectively and theoretically, yes, I know this probably somewhere fits in with for my betterment, but, but, but be grateful when you really can be, yeah. you know? Don't, don't be artificial. No, not great. to, well, yeah, anything, to okay. force it on yourself, right. I don't think is, 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 is a yeah. wise thing, but, yeah. but, but just as a, a focus of practice, that if I'm meditation to connect with the sense of, of gratitude in this moment, for this moment right now, yeah. and so that it starts to, you know, the seed is watered and watered and watered. Right. It has to always be genuine. Yeah. The, the, for, the forceful thing, I wonder that too about the relationship with a teacher. Yeah. Right? Like uh, a teacher um, is sharing a lot of information. Right. right. And the teacher, it could really, I love my teacher, you know, and I have allegiance to the teacher. Right. And therefore, am I just accepting all the information and just saying, I can, you know, lay this out like, uh, like a rule book or something like that, like a game plan. And yeah. I'm just gonna follow the steps. Tell me, I'm in totally in your hands. You tell me step one, two, three, four, five, six. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna do it. I wonder 
if that works. That if instead it's it always have to, has to be direct experience. That my teacher can say something in one moment and that resonates completely with my heart. And I say, yes, thank you for reinforcing what the inner guru, you were talking about the outer guru and the inner guru. There so this is a way to talk about yeah. that, I think. So yeah. the outer guru reinforces what the inner guru says. And then, then, then I know, okay, that's like an answer that I found because the, that's right. the outer guru reinforced what the inner guru knew. But sometimes the outer guru it's not, I don't have that direct experience uh-huh. of, of, of the inner guru. And then what, what do I do? Because have I formed an allegiance to the outer guru and therefore I should take everything that the outer guru says yeah. and implement it into my life? Yeah. Or am I opening up to this, uh, this path of direct experience that yeah. I always have to be the one deciding whether or not I, t- I, I receive or not? Right. Well, okay. So... The inner guru is where we all need to go, but the external guru is the one who helps us hear what the true inner guru is saying as apart from uh, the conditioning, the, the conditioned turnings, the tapes, you know, that keep coming up. Because sometimes we'll think that the, the tapes are the inner guru. When they're not. Yeah. That's the problem. So the guru, the, that's the reason we have an external guru. If the external guru is truly pure in uh, the, the, the teachings offered and the guidance offered, then we will grow a relationship with the inner guru. And that becomes, I mean, that's a wonderful part of the process. And as we, as we do that, then guru becomes a much larger and larger and larger, much broader reality for us as it did right even during the conversation between Arjuna and Krishna and the Gita. So you can watch this relationship between Arjuna and Krishna grow between student and, and, and uh, teacher, shishya and guru. So that's one of the most powerful and revealing things about the yoga process. You can have the Yoga Sutra and study it for eons, but without the guru, you really, you know, can go astray. It's it's necessary to have a teacher. Necessary. Now we can all, we all have many teachers in life in our lives, but for spiritual life, we generally lock onto a, a, a couple or a few teachers that really elevate us and teach us how to get in touch with the inner guru because that's the goal. That's the goal. The inner guru. Yeah, it, it seems that there's no way of avoiding this discrimination that goes on within myself between is it my conditioning that's driving right. me right now or is it the inner guru? You're right, and that's discernment. Yep. The, 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 the better word is discernment because that's the buddhi. Mm-hmm. The, the buddhi is the faculty of discernment. And so the external guru fortifies that, mm-hmm. fortifies that faculty of discernment. And like, I like what you said earlier, you know, you sign up with a guru, you know, you sign up for a kind of a curriculum or a, or a, a, a speaking, speaking professorially, you know, with your syllabus. Yeah. You know, it's not like you can take a course with the professor and say, you know, I think I'll just go off and, and do these other studies and hope to get credit for it. Wait a second. The syllabus, there's a, there's a contract in a way. Mm. And you, you sign up to, to take shelter of a guru 
And to take that fully, then you benefit the most from that. If you veer off here and there, you're not going to benefit as much. But you still will benefit. If you just ignore the teacher completely and just do whatever you think is best, well, then you're dealing, your teacher is your sanskaras. So you see, there's a balance. And invariably, the sanskaras do get activated. And I see this with my spiritual students, that sometimes those, you know, come up and they insist that that's what, you know, they should be, um, you know, moving toward. Mm. And I say, okay, but be aware that there is this other option. And, you know, deliberate and let me know what you want to do. So it's this, yeah. this is tricky stuff. Choices, choice making. That's right. I think is, is That's right. <laughs> what it's really all about. Every right. moment I have a Decisions. choice to make. Decisions. Decisions. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The, <laughs> the, the, the best thing that I found for making decision is this belief, this knowing that whatever decision is made is the right decision on the ultimate level. What my experience of, of what's happened to that is that that belief has freed me, opened me up to being more relaxed. And being relaxed is a key mm-hmm. to try. It doesn't mean that I could always make the, the, the right, because in those moments they still, they grab me, they control yeah. me, I'm stressed about it, yeah. you know. Um, but the practice is, 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 is to remember yeah. that, you know, this is, this, is, this is beyond me. Even if I, you know, make this decision that was out of fear or mm-hmm. something, then again, that was a part of the, it, it happened. Yeah. So it was supposed to happen because it happened. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened. Okay. Okay. And then on the other hand, there's the guru who says, don't do this because this will cause trouble. This will cause you trouble and distraction from the spiritual process. So guru comes along and says, yes, you know, the guru can embrace everything that you're going through, the things that you may need to go through, the things that are unavoidable. But at the same time, guru could say, you could take this higher road and actually conquer more by doing this. Mm-hmm. And that's the power of heart and mind working together in yoga with the external guru. Mm-hmm. And then that becomes a natural practice uh, later on in the mature levels of, of yoga practice. Yeah. So it is, it's, it's a tricky thing. On the one hand, guru doesn't want to be a dictator. And that, but guru doesn't want to be completely passive. Oh, you want to jump off the building? That's fine. Okay, we can learn from that, you know. And you'll come back in the next life, and you know, you'll you'll die, and then you know we'll come back in the next life, and we'll pick up from there. Yeah. I mean, all of it's good in one sense, right? Yeah. But then you see, the guru says, "No, I care about you. I want to see you elevated now. I want to see you successful in this life." completely fulfill the very purpose for which you came here. Do this now, the, 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 the guru says, as the Yoga Sutra says in the beginning. Now it opens up. Atta, yeah. now. Yeah. So there's the now. Yeah. Yeah. I, the real power here, I think, is in our relationships and how yeah. supportive they can be. So that For many of us, all we need is that one person that really sees us That's and believes right. us beautiful. That beautiful. right now. That's beautiful. Yes. Yeah. 
I think that, that, that's, that's the relationship that that's we can it. be for each other is just to see them. I believe in you. That's right. You know, that happened to me recently with some, someone's just support me. It was like, wow. And I saw how <laughs> just that one little bit of support yeah. meant so much. Yeah. Was, Thank you. Oh, yeah. That's see, but that's a true teacher. Even if it comes in the form of a friend or or, or a relative, whatever. But Guru is the one person who should know you and embrace all of you even more than anybody. And that's, that's liberation. I wanted to ask you about relationship with words and silence. Mm. You have a very uh, deep relationship with words and linguistics and all of that. Yes. And... I have a four-year-old daughter, mm. and uh, the other day we were we were at the pool, and there's lots of kids around, and parents, and there's so much noise. Yeah, there, I can imagine. And just in, sure. in life in general, and I remember my own childhood. There was so much noise. It was very rare for me to have the gift of silence, and I'm really thinking about this. And I'm like, wow, are we depriving children? of the gift of, of, of silence. Mm. The more it's, it's nurtured within me, I'm just like, wow. I, I love words. And it was actually in becoming an author that I started to understand the limitation of words and fall in love with silence. It's weird. I don't, I don't know if you've had this experience too, but diving so much into the art of language and mm. words allowed me to see the limitations of it more and become really curious about what is right relationship with words, that words can be this amazing thing that we can communicate with each other, we can have conversations, it serves a role. But at the same time, the, the mind ex exhausts itself and what is, what is the appropriate balance of time between engaging with thoughts and words and, and, and just being in the nothing, being in the silence? Oh boy, do you have another hour? <laughs> I know you've got five minutes. <laughs> yeah, five minutes. <laughs> okay, uh, quick responses would be, that words that don't are not really grounded in spiritual potency are going to keep us bound, bound to this world, bound to the forces of this world. But words that are grounded in with sacred force, and that could be you know sutra texts, that could be poetic verse, philosophical verse. That could be prose of different kinds, philosophical, you know, prose and so on. Um, that can lift us up. So at the very end of the Vedanta Sutra, one of the most thick philosophical and hermeneutical texts that you can read in the uh, uh, panoply of Indian, ancient Indian literature, the last sutra is so dramatic. It says, Anavrati Shabdat. Anavrati Shabdat. It repeats the phrase, Anavrati Shabdat. And that means there is no turning or returning to this world, this temporal world, on account of Shabda, sound. Sound is what can liberate us, and sound is what can bind us. Mm. Which sound do we want? Sound is powerful getting back to that workshop where the student was saying, I'm so worried about the world. I said, the problem is that you're hearing mm -hmm. so much chaos in the world. You're going to be part of it. Mm -hmm. 
I said, I also don't believe in being in a cave and not knowing what's going on. I have, I spend one minute with the world's condition every day. One minute and I read it, I don't hear it. Mm. I don't see it. Just read. And basically all I want to know is if there's going to be, you know, an atomic holocaust. So I might want to pack or do, you know, might want to go into meditation a little bit more that day or whatever. And if the world's just still in its typical struggles, well, you know, that's unfortunate. I want to know a little bit who's struggling with what, what's happening. So at least when I get up in front of my university class, I don't sound like a complete uninformed idiot, right? Okay, but one minute with the world. Mm. And don't, don't, don't do it through sound. Keep the sound for precious things like Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti Hi. Om Purnam Adab Purnamidam, Purnat Purnam Udachyate, Purnam Adaya, Purnam Eva Vashishyate. That's the sound we want to flood our minds and hearts with. Otherwise, you're being bound to a world of misery. Okay, finally, because I gotta ask this question yeah. now that, that, that you talk about this is, what do you think of, of this idea of mm, viewing uh, ourselves as our own kind of safe keepers in a way, like looking at myself in the third person, right? Like my number one job in the world is to take care of me. Your number one job is to take care of you because I wonder from this perspective will it lead to a place, that place that you're just kind of talking about where I ask myself like, what does Avi need? Now, what is the best thing for him? I have to take care of him. It's like the, the inner guru in the self mm -hmm. is, is focused on care of the, the person. Well, personally, at my stage of things, I take care of me just enough so I can take care of others. Yeah, but I, okay, I will also question this though too, is that yeah. like, when I take care of others, is that a, a part of taking care of myself? Because back to what we sure. talked about in terms of like the service and my, and my heart, sure. and that's what I believe is that like, it, it is not separated. Like when I'm practicing karma yoga, um, that is a part of taking, I need that. Yeah. That is also a part of self-care. Yeah, and to practice karma is one thing, but when karma becomes yoga, yes, that's another thing. When I am acting selflessly in relation to others, as uh, I heard during the reading uh, from uh, Sri Gurudev the other day during lunch, that if we are giving with expect, expectation of return, then that's not pure giving. Um, but pure giving out of the fullness of the heart is when we are practicing the flow of the heart. It's such an interesting balance here. Yeah, that 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 happens, right? Because the purity of giving without expectations, there's that, and then there's also an awareness if I'm paying attention, that when I do that, when I give, with no expectations, that there's something in me that receives in that, yeah. and I'm not trying to. Uh, if I'm really paying attention, uh, being aware, I'm just trying to notice this is what's happening. Right. So I'm not trying to avoid. That, that reality. So can I, can I kind of hold that and walk that, that type, okay, you know, 
giving just completely, just for the sake of giving. But then I notice something is received when I do that. That's yes. okay. And actually, that's what makes me believe in God the most, yeah. that, it, that it's okay, because yeah. it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. But nature is set up that way, right. that giving, we receive something back. If I am able, if I'm at a stage where I'm able to worship at the altar of your heart, that gives so much to you, and I get so much from your heart back. At that level, there's only everything to celebrate. Mm. There's nothing to worry about. It is perfect. <laughs> Worshiping in the altar of others' hearts, because divine presence is there in your heart. It's the antaryaman, the indwelling divine presence, the paramatman, and the inner guru, chaita guru, is, is, is there. So if I'm if I'm worshiping at the altar of your heart, of course I'm going to get so much. I'm going to be flooded with so much sweetness. So yes, at that level, yes. But, you know, if I, you know, give you a piece of paper, I might want to, I hope you give me a pad of paper back, you know? Forget about that. Okay, forget about that. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. What an honor. Yeah, thank you. Honor's all mine. Yeah, Om Shanti. Hari Om. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this content and think others might as well, please feel free to share and subscribe.